Hello and welcome to the Saving Tomorrow's Planet podcast, where we're talking to pioneering people around the world taking action to save the planet. Imagine right now as we face another summer where we cannot travel to another country on holiday, that we can actually go to Bali and lap up the sun-drenched atmosphere of that wonderful island. But instead of arriving at the wonderful and famous Kuta beach with the waves lapping the pristine stand, we instead see the sea covered in a layer of plastic bottles which are washed up onto a beach already covered in plastic trash. Well, sadly, this nightmare scenario is a reality. Just type in Kuta beach plastic and see the shocking images online. I'm therefore delighted to speak to Gary Bonchip, a young Frenchman who moved to Bali as a child and is now dedicating his life to preventing plastic and organic waste from leaving the rivers of Bali and entering the sea to spoil these beaches and the lovely sea as we know it. You'll also hear at the end of our conversation that Gary is really clear what he needs to be a great success. Money, of course, but also meeting the Minister of Tourism for Indonesia. So it will be great if through this podcast we can make that happen. As always, because we're speaking to people around the world, I asked Gary where he is right now for our recording. No, thank you, Jeremy, for, for having me on your podcast. Uh, we are currently in Bali, and it's you know just sunset time here. I'm in the middle of the rice fields. We just moved here with my girlfriend. So just the house completely surrounded uh, with rice fields. Fantastic. You can imagine that I'm intrigued to know how you and your family grew up in Bali, or, or what's the story? So tell us about you. Yes, definitely. Um, so we moved to Bali almost 16 years ago. I was, I was eight. And, you know, Bali, we'd been on holidays before and we all sort of were completely mesmerized by how beautiful the island of gods was. And I think, you know, from my first ever step on the island, I was suddenly fascinated by its culture. And, and when my, my parents, you know, told us that we were going to move here, we, we all jumped up and <laughs> said, yes, we're ready. Um, and so since then, you know, Bali has been our home. I went to college in the US, but definitely came back. Uh, so I've been back for three years now. And I can see, although my, my French accent is still present, I consider myself more Balinese than I do French. Well, that's interesting because at the beginning, I thought I heard an Australian accent, so I hadn't picked up the French. So let's just spend one more minute. I mean, this is a big thing for a, a family to do. I guess you're now going to tell me you moved from France to Bali. Where were you originally living as a child? So born in Paris, lived there until I was eight, and then uh, moved to Bali with the full family. So for people who haven't been to Bali and are intrigued to know what's so wonderful about it, could you tell us three amazing things about living there or, or being uh, in Bali? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, it's the only, one of the only Hindu islands in the entire archipelago of Indonesia itself. It's this amazing culture and religion. Uh, you know, it's called the Island of, of the Temples with you know, thousands of temples here on the island, but also, um, you know, its people are, are extremely smiley and, and very, very generous. Um, you know, we're blessed to be here on the soil. So I'll just quickly tell you a very quick story. I took my wife to Bali for honeymoon, but when we arrived, our hotel 
was not there. So at eight o'clock at night, yeah. we were desperately trying to find a hotel and they were all full. And a man came up to us and said, look, would you like to sleep here? And he opened up the door to a temple and we slept in a temple on our first night of the honeymoon in Bali. Beautiful. So, <laughs> so I have very good memories for it. Yeah. So uh, you were growing up and you were looking around your environment and something clearly struck you and your siblings that something wasn't perfect. You could tell us what it is you observed about the island that wasn't so wonderful as the island of the gods. Right, I think um, growing up on the island, I remember pristine beaches, um, you know, white beaches, best sunsets ever. But all of a sudden, very quickly, you know, year by year would go and every rainy season, the trash problem was getting worse and worse. And whenever it rains, that meant, you know, our beaches would, would get dirtier and dirtier. At 14, with my brother and sister, we decided that we wanted to do something uh, to protect our beautiful island and decided to, to start a youth movement to clean it up. So we did weekly cleanups every single week. But, you know, cleanup after cleanup, you see another swoosh of plastics coming right back and you feel completely useless. And just to realize that 90% of the plastics in the ocean that end up on coastal areas are actually coming from land-based sources, so rivers and streams. And so we, we, we changed our motto since then to really focus inland on, on rivers, more at the source. So it's been a, an ongoing journey for us uh, for the last 11 years of battling against plastic pollution, of trying to make plastic pollution front page news. Right, so now I'd like to understand now in much more detail the journey of a plastic bottle in Bali, before other places, in terms of these rivers. Uh, I've got it, I bought a drink. What then happens? What's the journey that's going on? Because in fact, I'll tell you what I want to talk about is the contrast between France and Bali, or Britain and Bali, as to the journey of plastic. So unfortunately, you know, in Bali, so Bali alone, a population size of about 4.5 million people, you know, the average Balinese produces just, you know, one and a half kilos of plastics per day. The average European produces about 2.2 kilos, I think, of plastics or so just below the US. And so we, we're still producing less, but, you know, in, uh, unfortunately, we do not have proper waste management here on the island. 48% of trash end up, only end up in managed landfills and the rest basically you know doesn't have any space for it because of the lack of infrastructure so it could end up in a river the story of the plastic bottle i think you know is an iconic one because whenever it rains if for example you do not have proper a proper bin to put your trash in you toss it in the back of your house and then with the rain it'll get into the closest gutter or subak the water irrigation channels of the rice fields here in bali and then that will basically make its way down to a bigger river which will then potentially bring it to the ocean and this lack of infrastructure is, is, is a huge one to blame. There's, there's a huge tremendous gap in, in Bali. We have most of the villages that do have waste pickup, you have to pay for it. And oftentimes like privatized little companies that are not governmental run. The government is, is really on a, I guess, on a philosophy of trying to close the landfills because they've been fully, fully filled up. And so what they do is that they'll dump all of the trash in a landfill and over the years that it accumulates into a mountain yeah. uh, with no proper you know, incineration or not. These big mountains of trash that need to be closed down. So in July, for example, our central landfill on, on the island is going to close down, which means that we're going to see more and more illegal waste dumps everywhere, typically around rivers. Okay, so I want to learn from you about the macroeconomics of an island like Bali and where the money is, because there is money to solve this, I would 
proposed. Help me understand both the government, because obviously there's the government of Indonesia, but the government of Bali. And if you're happy or comfortable or willing to, you know, what's your view on uh, both the oversight and then where the money's going to actually go and just solve this problem? The issue of the, of the governance here on, on the island is a big one. You know, every single rainy season, we have this flood of plastics that come in and basically take all of Bali's most popular beaches, Kuta and Jimbaran, and entirely covers it, yeah. uh, you know, to the brink of plastics. And you have plastic waves and it takes Bali as a reputational island. Most wanting to be visited island in the midst of COVID is now becoming the island of trash. And unfortunately, I would say, you know, that is hugely due to the lack of waste management infrastructure. And although there's, you know, laws from a national level to implement uh, localized waste management practices in each village, Bali is made out made up of, you know, more than 500 set villages that we call DESA. Um, and each DESA, depending on its region, is giving a waste management budget. But unfortunately, a lot of these, you know, very localized governmental Structures are really struggling to find the, the money to build proper facilities to handle the trash as the central landfills are closing down and these illegal landfills are everywhere on the island. You know, there's potentially hundreds of them. And now just last week, we actually cleaned up our first big one, um, which we so in, in the midst in the span of three days, collected four and a half tons of trash, just plastic trash. So, you know, imagine the visual of that. This week, we're getting ready to, to clean our second one, which is uh, a giant monster, a big landfill that goes down at least 20 meters deep. So it's a 20 meter tall landfill. Is this your primary job? Is this where you are? Are you living off this? So this is def definitely, definitely my life. Um, you know, since 14 years old, I've been on this journey, you know, learning every single day about what I could do to contribute towards the cause. Right. Um, back then, um, you know, we were doing cleanups. Uh, we had no facility whatsoever. It was purely voluntary. Very quickly, we saw the power of video to, to showcase short little videos. So we created a media company that we, call, we, that we called Make a Change World. I went to New York for, for film school, uh, you know, then worked at Vice and Agio and really learned the tools of filmmaking. We combined our passion for adventure and film. Um, so for the last year and a half, I've started another company called Sungai Watch, which is a full-time river cleanup organization to clean Bali's waterways by installing simple trash barriers. So we have a full team of 35 here. We have a 1,000 meter squared facility to sort through every single piece of trash that we collect every single day from the river. Right now we're collecting about two tons of trash per day out of our 50 barriers. And, you know, look for not just sorting, but are looking into the auditing of every single brand that are polluting and we're having some of the conversations with some of the bigger guys to really start to collaborate on solutions, um, you know, so more sustainable packaging, but also R&D on what can we actually do with some of the plastics that have never been able to be, to be recycled. So let's take a step back because you gave us a lot of great information there. So you've learned a lot about great filmmaking. And as you say, on your site, you have some fantastic videos of you going down rivers in, in canoes made out of plastic. You've invented something to catch the plastic in the river. You mentioned it there. Talk to us in detail what you've invented and interesting, simple and powerful. Really thought about what can we do as a direct call to action, something that we can potentially scale at mass scale, but made from localized solutions or materials. So everything, like anybody basically could make these barriers. So we call them trash barriers. For the last year, we've tested you know, 
eight different types of barriers from floating devices to cages to nets and booms, all very much you know, affordable technologies. And now we've, you know, upon one year of research, we came up with three exclusive designs that we're making here at Sungai Watch. And um, you know, it's, been, it's been really great to, to be testing them out in the rivers and we're really happy with how they are reacting. Describe what they look like so we can yeah. picture them. Mainly a floating device to be able to float up. On the water surface, we don't want to be blocking like, like you know, 100% of, of the river because then that will just create floods. So as floaters, we use PVC pipes and then we have these galvanized frames uh, made from metal. And on some of our bigger devices, we use the, the plastic drums. So the, the water drums in that case that we repurpose from old ones being, being used at, at markets. Um, and then we have a, a bigger frame where you can actually walk on it. So the accessibility is better and then you can actually have more access to clean. The more we clean, the more we learn about these different scenarios. We just had the big rainy season on the island. So typically these will be you know, anchored with either trees, like hard trees, or we build our own foundations. So these big concrete anchors that can go up to five meters down deep in the soil to um, to, to really hold. Because, um, you know, the idea of these berries are, are for them to be super strong. And, you know, so, so some of the bigger ones can stop up to 50 tons of trash a year. The medium ones, I would say, are stopping, you know, 20 tons. And then our smaller ones are more in the realm of like five. One of the things I can picture is obviously you want all the fish and everything to go. And because plastic floats, you actually only need to deal with the top I don't know, half a meter of depth. Exactly, yes. So these cages are basically, um, you know, anywhere between 10 to 70 centimeters, depending on the river and the depth of the water and where we place it. So I would say, you know, every river is truly different. So we have to be adaptable. Our first fully recycled um, element made 100% from plastic bags. So we replaced the frame instead of using metal. We're now using the plastics that we've recovered to then make these trash barriers fully recycled. Good. I was wondering if that would be a, an answer because that is something that obviously came to mind. Have you invented a way to then extract the trash live from these barriers? You know, as it hits, it's then somehow dragged out and automatically put into the land on into some container, or do you have to physically drag it out? Well, this project to clean rivers has been entirely funded through sponsors and grants, and so. Um, and, you know, we're looking to scale this up massively all throughout Indonesia the year after. Every single river in Indonesia to have a barrier, unfortunately, needs to be localized. I feel like our barriers are a symbol. When people see it in their communities, they'll participate. We're very much community-based. And so of having people down in the river, you know, we're cleaning a river with a lot of people that live around it. They're, they're in awe of our work. They, they want to get involved. And so rather than having a robot that will pick it up and for it be, to be out of sight, out of mind. We are right now designing technologies to allow our jobs to be easier, but ultimately, you know, we're creating jobs through deploying these barriers and creating awareness as well. So which companies, which global polluter in your bottle checking and packaging checking ranking, have you already identified the top five sources of this plastic? So every month it changes because we're releasing this report monthly. Right now, I would say the reoccurring number one is Wings Surya. For they're an Indonesian company. Yeah, so they're responsible for the for the misadap, which is um, the instant noodles that you know oh, yeah. everybody eats on the island. And you know we find like thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Our last report, which will be out uh, later this week, analyzes three hundred thousand 
pieces of plastic of which we picked up about 15,000 of their branded plastics. Uh, so we have to hand pick through each one. We have lasering technology to allow us to go a little bit quicker. The first one was fully manual counting. So we're definitely improving in our methods and hopefully you know, we can only improve from now. But on our first report, done on Aqua came out as uh, the number one, the biggest distributor of water here on, on, in Indonesia. And they're responsible for these mini cups that they give out at ceremonies at mass scale that are made from polypropylene um, and their bottles. And they have, you know, maybe four or five different formats of their bottles that we find on the river, as well as glass. We find so much of their glass bottles. So it's so actually both Wings and Danon have reached out. We're in full conversations with them to look at better ways of packaging, but also look at how they could potentially be funding some of, some of the clean, cleanups. So how much money have they concretely given to you, if you're comfortable to tell me that? We're still in, in, in full brainstorm right now to see how much they can give us. Um, so nothing has been fully signed, but they seem to be on board. And I think that showcasing to the industry that these brands are responsible and are taking responsibility is only going to be, I think, a win-win uh, to show what is possible. This generation that point fingers. I think the younger, the younger myself, you know, would have definitely wanted to do that. I grew up, you know, almost thinking that corp the corporate world was the enemy. But now, if we want to move forward, we need to have all hands on deck, which means th this open dialogue going yeah. back and forth. And now, you know, you're seeing on a global level, having recovery plans. There's a big global treaty that, that wants to be signed within the next year. Uh, they're calling it the Paris for Plastic. It took 10 years for the Paris Accord to be fully in place. And plastics, we really do not have that time. You know, 2050, more plastics than fish in the ocean. So we're really hoping that within the next year, you know, these global groups can really engage, recovering more than they produce. So it's going to be a lot of work, but hopefully, you know, the dialogue um, really is there. Yep. So Good. And I hope we're going to be able to help you. Let's see. Here's another question. The plastic comes out. You've now got tons and tons of plastic. What are your big ideas or what are you doing to then turn that plastic into a different solution? Because otherwise it goes back into a landfill, I guess, or something. Tell us the, the journey then from your metal gates. Where does it go? The first big step is sorting by hand into 12 or 20 different types of plastics. We do 12. After that, you washed. Next week, we're getting our first auto washing machine that's engineered here on Bali by one of our amazing engineers, and uh, we'll be able to automize the process. The shredding happens, so then you know all those plastics get shredded into smaller bits. All of that we'll be able to do in-house, and then you really have two solutions, really, in terms of transforming your plastic. You know, either an extruder machine or like a hot press. Okay? And then from there, you know, we're really looking at building materials. So how can we replace potential building blocks? or roofing so this is exciting so let's talk about money because you know one of the things that's becoming very clear from all the podcast conversations it's sort of obvious but it only is when you hear it that every source of pollution let's call it post-use pollution is in some ways being caused because that item is the cheapest way to create a solution so a plastic bottle is the cheapest solution to you know convey water and because it's so cheap, that's the default. Now, you're then going to start making a product, which is a brilliant idea because then it doesn't go into landfill. But the question is, how can you be competitive with whatever it is you're replacing? Have you checked and do you have some interesting things to say about how cheap you can make something from a recycled plastic versus 
the other product that it will now replace? Obviously, recycling is super energy intensive. Um, right now, we're, we're installing a full solar roof that will be able to you know, handle about 25 kilowatts of energy, which is quite big. If you look at you know, the average household consumes about two and a half, so almost 10 times that, worth, that, that amount for a facility daily. The story behind what we're building is going to be the power. Bali is super ecologically advanced, I would say, as a hub for all of these environmental initiatives coming together. So not necessarily competing with standard brick, the bataco here they call it in Indonesia, but really looking at people that are already sustainably conscious. If you look at costs, it will never win. But I think if you're looking at recovering rivers, uh, putting a price tag to the work that we're doing, and how you're able literally to pull this material from a dirty river and transforming it it's into a product, then it has some sense. And then, you know, that can be valued, I think, at a higher price than just the standard market price for whatever that product may be. So if we just think and about, just for a second, the noodle manufacturer you mentioned, is that company manufacturing noodles on Bali or somewhere else in Jakarta or somewhere? Yes, yeah, so they're producing in East Java and just south of Jakarta. When you were looking at plastic packaging, to have a sudden change is not really doable, but to have an approach of saying, hey guys, we need to start using recyclable products for our packaging, I think that and that's a different dialogue, you know. You know, some of the populations around Indonesia that are only living on one to two dollars a day and anything around them is the single use wrapped sachets. So sachet shampoo, sachet coffee, sachet instant noodles, literally everything is wrapped around the material. And so until very recently, you know, we felt that they can be recycled in Indonesia. We're now developing these sheets where we can use do a mixing of the plastics that we're using. So like seven 70% hard plastics, and then we'll put, you know, a mixture of 30% with sachets, straws, and bags, and the results are, are, are really, really cool. They're, you know, it's, it's a really solid material that we're creating with some of our partners. So I'm hopeful that looking at, at the demand for recycled products, that is really increasing. People want to buy something because they want to be a part of the bigger conversation. They want to buy to do good. And so I think that there's a growing market there to sell some of our products. Just on that point, if we were to assume barley is a low cost producer, and, you know, frankly, in my business world, I have bought from Indonesia because it was one of the lowest cost producers of certain things worldwide. Could it be that these building materials you're making may not be the most cost effective solution for Bali, but actually may be very cost effective for other countries in the world and therefore is a very competitive product and therefore you do have a true market? I hope so. I think that it's too early days for us right now to really have that in mind. We're just really looking right now and R&Ding into the materials and the properties and how it lasts, ultimately getting certified by different institutes to make sure that it doesn't leachate microplastics or it's not flammable. That's really where our thinking is right now. But from a business point of view, obviously, those are going to be you know, things that we really have to, to consider in this introduction of, of whatever product. What do you need to step change this initiative to really make it a, a pilot that is for the whole of Indonesia or becomes the most celebrated circular, using that word, uh, concept that others worldwide would say, well, hang on, this is, this is perfect. If I had a wand and I could make something happen for you straight away, that would transform your vision into the next step of reality, what would you want from me? I think a little bit of funding. Right now, it's really R&D stage. How can we introduce it to the market? You know, self-generate income from the plastics that we're, that we're collecting. But also, we're really using this idea of saving the Bali Bay 
Um, so Jinbaran and Kuta, those very two popular beaches, which every year flushed with plastics. So we're placing 100 on the west coast of Bali and 80 on the east coast of Java, because according to mapping from all sorts of professors, they're seeing that there's these currents that come and bring the island next door to Bali. Every single river in Indonesia could have a barrier and that we could have these systems in place to really be able to generate collection and upcycle most of the plastic. So how much money do you need? If you need a check, what would be the number on that check in either dollars or euros? I think just to get Bali going, it would be a $500,000 amount, really to showcase what we're able to do. And from there, show the world that we can protect one of the most pristine islands in the world just within a couple of months. We have until the next rainy season to place all of these barriers. We are 38% of the way there. Right now, you know, one of our one of our selling points is our village model. So, you know, any company can sponsor a village, which means that they'll sponsor 10 barriers and have a mobile station which was designed where all of the sorting for the village happens. Um, so one village is about $65,000, which sponsors a full crew of five people with a pickup. And, and so right now what we're really working on, we're just setting up our two first villages, is for them to be self-sustainable from the second year. One of the things that I didn't mention that we also have in the rivers is everything organic. Organic waste accumulates you know, five times more than what we're collecting mm -hmm. in terms of plastics. And so we're creating rich compost from, from all of the organics and creating biochar, so biocharcoal for like, we're basically burning with a pyrolysis machine, all of our wood. So we're salvaging the wood from the river and creating a rich product out of it. Last question. So who would you like to meet that would either help you open a door, would listen to your story, would give you that very the big number, 500 grand? That's not hanging around. That's a big, bold number. Who is the person on your list that you would most like to meet? The Ministry of Tourism of Indonesia would definitely be one because ultimately, if we manage to pull this off and save, I don't like to use the word save, but you know, protect Bali coastline, then it's going to represent millions of dollars being saved on a tourism level. We're trying to push hard to meet him and you know, the dream would really be basically have governmental funding to do the work that we're doing. Well, look, that's been a fantastic story. And uh, I'm highly impressed by all the things you're doing. And I think the audience will be too. And be interesting to see if from this, any of the 500 grand or the access to the Minister of Tourists might happen. We'll see. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for the chat. It's